Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Great Northeast BJJ podcast. Henry Ankins is a name that people bring up a lot around me. Got his black belt from Hickson. Spent a ton of time with him. Really, though, he's made a name for himself as a world-class instructor. So it was an honor and a privilege to record this episode with him. We hit all the topics on this one. It was a great conversation to be a part of. I learned a lot. It was super fun. I really think you guys are all going to like it. We're definitely looking forward to when the time comes, when this quarantine is over, and we get to hang out and train with Henry in person. Special thanks to Dave McGinnis. Thanks for setting us up with this one. It's much appreciated. Thanks, brother. And as always, this episode is brought to you by the world-famous Tortuga Soap Company. All the things you need to keep you looking and smelling good, use the discount code PODCAST and get 20% off your order. Also brought to you by Port City BJJ, home of the Great Northeast BJJ Podcast. If you're ever in the Portsmouth, New Hampshire area, please come by and check us out. We'd love to have you visit and come train with us, portcitybjj.com. This episode is also brought to you by BJJ Prehab. BJJ Prehab is a program of custom videos designed to help you prevent injuries and keep you on the mat injury-free, or in this case, get you back on the mat healthy and ready to train. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Really appreciate your support. Hope everybody's staying healthy out there, and we look forward to seeing you on the mats really soon. Thanks, everybody. Peace. Listen, man, welcome to the Great Northeast BJJ Podcast. Um, super stoked to have you. Big thanks to our friend Dave McGinnis for, uh, he's like, man, I, I, you want to have Henry on the podcast? I was like, yeah, of course, dude. Um, I'm George. I've never met you, but uh, I've heard a lot of great things about you. This is my partner, Jay. Uh, welcome to the podcast, brother. Thanks for having me on, guys. Heck yeah. Absolutely. So how, how are things on the West Coast these days? Well, I, I'm in Vegas now. So I, um, I moved out to Las Vegas, God, probably almost a year ago. Um, and man, Vegas is one of those cities that's a, like a boom or bust town. And, uh, you know, when economic disasters hit, like this town just gets crushed. So um, I did a little YouTube uh, or like a little Facebook video the other day driving down the strip of Las Vegas Boulevard. And it's literally like a ghost town here. It's, it's crazy. It's eerie because, you know, you always think about the strip. There's always people out. There's millions of people all over the place. And literally you're driving down and, you know, you're driving for a mile and you see maybe 10 people, which is kind of crazy. It reminded me that uh, kind of like that scene in that Will Smith movie, I Am Legend, where he's walking around like a major city and there's just like no one around. It's, it's kind of like that. It's yeah, man, that's a good point. It's the city that never sleeps. Probably the best example of, of how COVID has affected people is in that city where the streets are packed no matter what hour, like four o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, one o'clock and you know, like there's people all the time. And that's probably the biggest contrast that you could maybe find in the country, I think. Yeah, they say it's basically like the epicenter of the financial like the, you know, what's being crushed because I mean, it's all service industry, right? And it's all based on tons of people coming out. Like now the weather's getting hot. We just had our first hundred, uh, hundred degree day out here. And, um, you know, usually pool parties are starting to pop off right now and everything's just crushed. So nobody's working. It's pretty, it's pretty, 
um, crazy. You, 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 I mean, you'd never imagine that there would be something that would come along in our lifetime that would shut down the city, the whole city of Vegas. There would just be no one coming in. Right. I, I would have never thought, I mean, I've, I haven't experienced something like this before. And we've gone through, you know, we had um, the, you know, the bird flu thing come through. Ebola. Yeah. And, and, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't, it wasn't, Hey man, don't go outside. You might kill yourself or somebody else. That's man. Those are harsh stakes and it's affected a lot of people. And I think mentally is, is maybe the biggest change that we're all trying to deal with. Like, how do you encapsulate this? How do you keep yourself sane during this time? Yeah. It's like jujitsu. You got to go with the flow, you know, right. Control what you can. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you, you, this is the situation you're given and now how do you make the best of it? You know, how do you find comfort in, uh, in the uncomfortable? You just got your guard passed, knee on stomach, they're looking for chokes. How do we survive? Hey, uh, question for you, given that, like, and, and we'll go way back into, into the, uh, you know, like go back to the beginning of Henry Aikens. Um, but are you doing like the, the online thing right now? Like, you know, the reason I asked specifically is because so much of, uh, you know, the, the concept, one of the big concepts that you teach is about the connection, right? Mm-hmm. And solo drills and stuff like that. There, there is no connection. There's not another person, right? Do you buy into what people are trying to do to keep people involved in jujitsu or? Do you- well, absolutely. You know, so I've had a website now for the last four years where I've been releasing content, releasing um, all of the footage from like all the seminars I do. I record my seminars and I let, I release that online. Um, and so one of the things I, I, over the last few years, I have noticed because for me too, I was always very skeptical about putting stuff on video and, and Hickson was always too, you know, he was always the, of the mindset that you have to feel it. Um, but the feedback that I've gotten over the last four years is that, you can actually provide a great amount of value if you can articulate yourself well enough and if you can demonstrate. So you're always going to be missing that, that extra element of the kinesthetic feel. But when students are learning, you know, we basically use three different mediums. We use the audio, the visual, and the kinesthetic, the feel of what's going on to be able to pick up jujitsu. And so I think if you can do an, a, a good enough job articulating what you're trying to pass on and you can kind of show in depth and detail, um, yeah, I think you can pass on a lot of information. And so I definitely think right now, obviously, um, video is probably the best way to, to trans, transfer knowledge, you know, with the circumstances that we're, we're dealing with right now. And so um, I know people are trying their best and, you know, I, I know a lot of schools have gone to that format where they're trying to do classes online. Um, in regards to what you mentioned about solo drills, I mean, the solo drills is, is mostly, I think that stuff is really, really helpful in A, keeping someone in shape, right? You're never going to get the, I mean, with jujitsu, so much of it is, is timing and feeling and reacting to your opponent's movements. So you're going to lose out on that aspect of, of reacting to a specific uh, movement or a kind of um, a signal that they're giving you based on, you know, a way they move or the way they react. So you're going to miss out on that. But I think keeping in shape and also developing the correct movement patterns will be extremely. So I think you can, in this time where people are not so much training, I think you can come back a better practitioner if you do do certain things to, to kind of keep up with your, your daily practice. 
So I was just thinking about kind of what you're saying because we just started doing some online um, like drills sort of stuff for our students. And I think that in, in teaching, I've taught a couple, Jay's taught a couple, but like setting it up to teach, I had to really like think about the stuff in a different way than I've normally had when there's another person you're doing it with. And then even when you're trying to do like a, a movement, I feel like you have to really think about it more maybe when you're doing it. And so it has been helpful to me. Yeah. When you're doing the movements by yourself um, without having someone else laying on top of you or someone else, you can really kind of focus on what it's how to properly do the movement effectively. You know, so many times you'll, you'll do a, a movement in class or in training, for example, with an unresisting opponent. But then when you try to do it in live action, you, you always mess up on it because there's so many other things going on through your mind. You're not able to kind of focus just specifically on that movement and what, how you're supposed to uh, execute that movement the most effective way or the most efficient way. And so um, I definitely think doing these movements by yourself where you're in an environment where there's no resistance um, can definitely be helpful. The other thing with, I think, practicing these movements too is, you know, in jujitsu, we use so many different body movements that we never use in any other thing we do in life, right? We're using our legs, we're using our arms and putting our, our body in all these crazy different movements and directions. And so I think with the solo movements, it really helps your body to develop the, the muscles that are going to help you execute those movements because those are just not movement chains that you use in daily life. Right. And I, and I think to that, to that point, it's, you know, it's been a, a, a tremendous challenge for strength and conditioning coaches to try to get with, you know, improved jujitsu athletes because yeah, sure. Like will squatting help you? Will bench press help you? Will you know, doing all these, these, you know, the burpees and, and uh, Turkish get-ups, will it help? Yeah, but like jujitsu is so unique in the way that it uses the body. I think it's it's very tricky to coach to to train an elite athlete to get stronger, more fit for jujitsu. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many movements that you have to, uh, you know, I, I think with every with every sport, they want to be extremely specific to the movements, and with jujitsu, there's just so many movements out there. Um, with each technique, it's a different way of moving the body, a different way of applying that people have a very, very difficult time. You know, how do you train someone specifically to, to develop those muscles that they're going to be using? So um, I can, I can definitely see and understand why it, that, that becomes a more difficult thing. I know a lot of people use kettlebells and, you know, this whole, the last 15 years have been all about functional training, but um, yeah, with jujitsu, it's, it's, it's really interesting how we use the body. Um, and a lot of people say the best training, I mean, the best training for any sport is, is basically just doing the sport, right? Training, sure. but you also have to understand how to do it in an intelligent way where you're not burning and breaking down your body. Um, and there's different, there's different ways to, to break up the training so that you can develop the high level of skill without tearing down the body. Awesome. So George, you want, you want to do the origins thing? Well, let me get like, so I get, this has been really, I've been thinking about this and yes, I definitely, I always, Jay knows, I always go back to the beginning. I'm like, where, where were you born? And I think you were born in Vietnam, right? <laughs> yeah. I was born in Vietnam. Yeah. But I was let me not ask, there very long. It was, uh, it was during the war, actually at the end of the war. So I wasn't there very long. I was there for just a few weeks. And, uh, you know, my mom went back to 
try to get her family out. He was the end of the war. And uh, they, she went out to try to get her family out. And she was pregnant with me at the time. And my dad had told her not to go back because, you know, things were kind of looking bad. Um, but she went back anyways. We were able to get my whole immediate, her whole immediate family out, like my grandparents and her um, brothers and sisters. Um, but she ended up having me while, while uh, she was over there. Dude, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. both I have an older brother and a younger brother. And they were both born in the United States. But I, I was born there in Vietnam. So. How'd your mom end up in the United States? Uh, my dad, you know, she met my dad. She used to work for the airlines and uh, my, she met my dad when she, while she was working for the airlines. Um, and yes, they just end up, you know, being together. And uh, that's pretty much the story. My dad used to work for a book publishing company called McGraw Hill. And uh, at the time, Whoops. it was one of the largest publishing companies in the world they do textbooks for all the schools and so he was traveling all around southeast asia and that's how they met man for so for all you millennials out there watching mcgraw hill when we actually had physical textbooks and we would go to school and had social studies and history and stuff they made all the books yeah the, those uh books that you would pay four hundred dollars for and then when you try to return them at college you get 40 bucks for those books. <laughs> You didn't even, you cracked open your book maybe five times and then you return the book and you get 40. Did you, when you guys were young in school, did you have to make the, the book covers out of uh, like paper grocery bags? What do you mean when I was young? I'm still young. <laughs> I'm old, man. <laughs> no, um, yeah, we, that, that's exactly what we used to do. You used to do the covers with uh, paper, brown paper bags. I you do that, Jay? Contest that I could do it today if I had to. <laughs> I know the mechanics, right? So, but you grew up, did you grow up in Oklahoma? Um, well, I grew up on the East Coast for a few years, but I, I went through high school in Oklahoma. So I did uh, quite a bit of my, like my high school years were in Oklahoma. So I guess that's where a lot of us do a lot of our growing up. But um, I, I mean, I lived in LA for most of my life. Uh, I moved to LA when I was like 19, 20 years old. Um, just after, just after I turned 20, I, I basically moved to LA to train with Hickson. So, um, yeah. How did, so, how did you know about Hickson? Man, Gracie in action, Gracie in action one and two. So there was that fight with Zulu, but then also, you know, in, in the Gracie in action films, they talk about Hickson being the best of all the brothers. And so I'm like, shoot, if I'm going to go out there and train, um, if I'm going to, take this chance and, and commit myself to doing this, I might as well go out and learn with the best, right? And see what's, why, why he's so different. Because, you know, when they would talk about him being the best, it wasn't by a small margin. It was by a huge margin. And so it's like, well, something different's going on with this guy than the other guys. Why is this guy, why is this guy so much better? You know? So why so was that, he? That was a huge fascination in, in, that was a huge fascination for me. Well, like, okay, well, what makes this dude so much better than everyone else? So what was, so what he, he, he was, uh, when you first came out, he wasn't, he wasn't the first Academy that you found in LA, right? Well, he, he, he was, but what happened was that their school was so hard to locate because, um, have you, if you, you ever saw the documentary choke, mm -hmm. have you seen that documentary? Yeah. Well, the school, the school was in a karate school. So they shared, they shared the space with the karate school and where the karate school was located was 
behind a couple buildings. It was like a carpet building and some other stuff. And it was right next to like an old body shop. So it was in an industrial space way in the back that there was really like no signage for it. Right. And so it was difficult to find in, in that aspect where it wasn't like a storefront. And back then it was before the internet. Right. So you couldn't just Google Hicks and Gracie Academy. Um, and so what we did is we ended up calling the Gracie Academy to try to find, Hey, is Hickson teaching there or where is he teaching? Cause we had heard he has his own school um, just through the grapevine asking around and stuff like that. We had heard he had his own school and, but at that point there was a huge falling out between the brothers, right? Hickson had left at, at one point they were all training and teaching together. They're what, they, what we used to call the Torrance Academy, which is where was Horian's school. Um, and so he ended up leaving and doing his own school and they didn't want to give out the information. They didn't want to give out the information of where he was teaching or where his school was. So. Right. Right. So go ahead, George. Sorry. Uh, no. What, uh, so when you showed up, when you found Hickson's, um, what was the class like at Hickson's at that time? Who was te- Was he Hickson teaching? So gosh, the first day I, so how it originally happened was uh, I was on, I think it was like a Thanksgiving break or spring break, right? It was a break from school. Um, and I was like, I'm going to go out to LA and try to train. Um, took us a couple days to be able to find the school after, you know, going through the yellow pages, calling around, trying to find eventually um, my aunt who I was staying with on, on break um, had a personal trainer who had a friend who trained at the school. So we were asking around everyone, like, well, I got to find this guy's school. That's, that's the reason I'm out here. I came out here to be able to train at his school. Eventually we, we got the, uh, the address and the phone number and we went to the, and so the first time I went in, I had no idea what to expect. I just wanted to go in and see if I could train. I didn't have a gi or anything at the time. And so I just went in and watched a class. And I think my first experience was like, wow, shit, I, this is the real deal. I'm at the right place was, um, literally five minutes within walking in, there's a training session going on a sparring session. And, uh, within five minutes, next thing I know is I see a guy getting up, holding another guy's legs, shaking his legs, trying to get him to wake up. Cause he choked him out. And I'm like, <laughs> yep, I'm in the right place. <laughs> so, you know, that experience, I think some people would be freaked out by it, but I was like, I was so gung ho for, for training. I'm like, yes, I want to learn how to do that. Amazing. So what was it like coming up um, with Hicks? And obviously I think, you know, you've, you know, your, your circle is pretty, uh, pretty wide now. Uh, we, have, we have a friend in common in John Frankel. Um, and, you know, obviously you're doing seminars all over the all over the planet and you see, get to see the way different academies are run. What made Hickson's style different and what made it like special to learn from him? Um, cause obviously I agree with you in 99.9% of the jujitsu world, if not a hundred agrees with you that he's the greatest of all time, you know, what was it like to train with him and why was it special? Um, I mean, man, the, the depth of knowledge that he has in doing jujitsu, it's like, you know, when you're training with someone that's been doing it as much time as he was doing it for basically his whole life, since they were, the kids were two and three, they've been on the mats and they've been training. So the, the depth of knowledge that he has is incredible as in his ability to um, know and understand every position and know the details, the subtleties of every position and how each position works. 
um, he, you know, that's one of the things they talked about is he improved his father's jujitsu so much. Like he took all of Elio's jujitsu and took a lot of it to the next level. So he was always refining it. And I, I think the big thing with Hickson is he had a very, very scientific approach to jujitsu in that he was always trying to understand how the techniques work and understanding what could create problems in the techniques and how to overcome it. And so, you know, it took a, a really in-depth understanding of body mechanics and leverage and basically taking that kind of knowledge of body mechanics, movement, leverage, and applying it to every single position to f- kind of see like how he can make things better. And, um, you know, a lot of people say that his biggest contribution to jujitsu is the understanding of the two elements of kind of weight distribution and connection, how to apply those two elements to kind of every position in jujitsu. And so, um, I know that's a huge element that a, a lot of people don't understand. It's, it, it's, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot in jujitsu, but without people really understanding what it means and how it applies to each position. And so um, both of those elements are kind of completely game changing when you understand how to apply it in, uh, into your game or when you understand how to take it and, and apply it to, on someone else. So that sounds, uh, it's, it's, it, it's more conceptual than, than, than technique based, right? So it's something that no matter what game you're playing, you could go and apply those concepts to any element of your jujitsu, right? Well, it's, so it's both. When you say conceptual, yes, it's an, it's an idea, right? But there's a way to apply it in each position. And so there's a technique for it also. Does that make sense? So yes, this is the the idea of how to stay connected to your opponent so you can feel his movement. So you have the sensitivity so you can react so that when you execute a movement, it like affects him. It has a greater effect on him. Um, And then this is how you go about applying it. And so there's little details that you can show someone to help them to be able to do it. So it's not just an I, it's not just, it doesn't become just an idea in someone's head. Okay. Hey, try to be heavy or try to use your weight, you know, which is so vague. And how does, how do you, how, how does you telling someone to use their weight better? How does that help them? Right. But if you show them, okay, this is how you apply your weight on your opponent. When you're in the cross side, this is how you make yourself feel heavier and do this and do this. Take your knees off the ground, take your elbows off the ground, stay on your toes, lift your butt up a little bit. If you explain to them the technique behind it, then they can start to apply it themselves. And so, yeah, it's, it's always both. There's always the concepts, right? The concepts are the ideas. And then it's how do we express that concept, which ends up being the technique. What is, amazing. Um, you know, I think about that. I think that when, when these concepts that you're talking about, the techniques that you're talking about uh, aren't always something you can see when you see someone doing it, right? Like they are, right. you know, it's, they're tough to pick up visually. Right, you got it. You have to feel it when it's being done. Is that kind of the concept that Nixon talks about about invisible jujitsu? It's so so yeah. So his the term that he uses invisible jujitsu is basically that. That's the idea. Is that many of the things that he's doing, it's very hard to pick up on because you don't see a lot of dramatic movement. You don't see a huge shifting of his position. So. Visually, it's hard to pick up. Now, for someone who's trained, someone who understands what's going on, if you've done it before, you can kind of see those details. And so that's one of the reasons I say it's hidden jujitsu. 
when you've been doing it long enough and when you understand what the person's doing, you can definitely see, oh, this guy's elbows on the ground. And so that's why he's not as heavy or his hip is not, you know, there's a subtle shift. Now it's subtle enough that it's happening, right? But if you're not aware of it, it's going to pass you by. Right. So a lot of guys, oh, sorry, but I, no, 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 no. a lot of guys uh, that are really great at something are not always a great coach, you know, is what was Hickson like as a teacher, as a coach? So that's a, that's a great question because um, like I mentioned before, his, his knowledge and his understanding of jujitsu is so deep. It's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, there, there's stories and, and hundreds of guys will testify. Anyone that's been to a seminar, you know, he'll come pull out black belts and he'll teach black belts how to do techniques that they've been doing for the last 20 years better, right? He'll improve like the bridge. That's always one that's he's really famous for, for teaching, reteaching people how to do more efficiently. So his understanding and his knowledge of jiu-jitsu is incredible. Um, the problem with Hickson is English is not his first language, right? And so his ability to articulate sometimes is not the best. And so um, this is one of the things that a lot of people have mentioned to me that they've gone to his seminars and they had a hard time understanding what he was saying or what understand what he was, because sometimes he kind of mixes words up or jumbles words around. So uh, I think that was even one of the issues or one of the problems when he started to release those videos um, I know there was kind of a huge kind of disappointment with the first series of videos is because the way that he was explaining or articulating the things didn't come across well to people. People weren't really understanding what he was trying to explain. But if you ever give Hickson a chance to put his hands on you and let you feel, and that's what he's exceptional at. If you let him do the technique to you, he can pinpoint all of the little details and all of the little micro adjustments that he's making and um, you know, or when he can position you in a way or, you know, that's when, that's what he's really, really good at teaching. That's when his teaching shines is um, the kinesthetic aspect of his teaching is he can get you to feel things and sense things and, and be aware of things that you were just completely blind to before. Um, and he does that, you know, he, that he's really, really good at that. And that's one of the things he does at all of the summers. He's like, Hey, feel this. You always have him. He's always saying, feel this, feel that, feel how this feels, feel how this feels. Because a lot of times, you know, his ability to articulate doesn't, is not, is not on that level. So, um, I think that's where he's really, really exceptional. And, um, that was a huge blessing for me being able to train underneath him, we were all these kind of similar sizes. And so it was really easy for him to use me as a demonstration partner. And so that was always a huge value. I, I would always pick up, be able to pick up, I think, I think extra details because he would use me as a demonstration partner. A lot of times when he was teaching the classes, um, just because it was just comfortable, we were just kind of the same size and it was easy. So, um, you know, I, I was always able to pick up a lot like, wow, he did that or he made this little adjustment that he didn't necessarily explain or didn't necessarily say, but I felt it. Wow. I've seen you in videos do the same thing, right? Where you are teaching the people and, and then you let them feel it. Right. Yeah. And that, like I said, you know, uh, uh, when, when we're learning as a student, I try to, uh, to, to as a good teacher, you want to appeal to 
the three kind of modalities of learning, like students, every student learns differently, you know? And like I said, the three, the three ways we learn is by hearing, seeing, and feeling, especially with jujitsu. Um, and so you definitely want to help the students if they can't understand, you want to basically make sure you're reaching all those senses that they can hear what you're trying to explain to them to do that they can see it. And so a lot of times what I'll do is when I'm teaching, I'll say, Hey, look at this hand, look what I'm going to do with this hand. And I'll snap to draw the eye to that or draw their attention to what I'm trying to show them. Look at my foot. I want you to see my foot and look what I'm doing with my foot. Because in the grand scheme of things, when you're watching someone teach a technique, if they're not pointing out all these little details of look what my foot is doing, look what my hand is doing, look what this is doing. Sometimes they, their focus is somewhere else and they miss that. And then of course the feeling thing, like, so that's, you know, when you break everyone up into groups and when I go around the room, that's always a huge thing is like, Hey, let me, let me show you how it feels so that you can replicate it. And a lot of times I'll let them do it to me and I want to make sure that it feels the same way. So that's, that's a huge element, you know, that they can replicate that kinesthetic feel. And I, I, I've, I've also watched a lot of your videos, your instructional videos, and you talk about that a lot. You're, you're always like, communicating with the person that you're teaching the technique to. Like you feel that, you feel that, feel that. Okay. Like I, um, I think it was a, uh, a guillotine. You were teaching a guillotine and talking about how the legs push away and how it's so inefficient the way that most BJJ guys do. They just push the legs away instead of pinching mm-hmm. and about the connection and, um, that, that it, that's a, it, something that keeps on coming up over and over when I, when I watch different things that you're doing. How has that affected? So have you taken what you learned from Hickson? Have you changed a lot of the way that you teach and, and taking advantage of kind of modern, you know, instruction methodologies like you're talking about the three different ways of, that people learn? Or are you pretty much kind of saying, hey, I'm going to keep the jujitsu pure and I'm going to change the teaching style? Um, I mean, definitely a huge, you know, influence. Uh, Hickson was always a huge influence on me. And that's definitely where um, something that he really emphasized and something that he was really big on, because I think that was always the way for him to have the greatest impact is helping the students feel what he was trying to teach. Um, And so that's something that really resonated with me, like, hey, make sure that they can feel it. Um, But also, I think my English is a little bit better than his and my ability to articulate is a little bit better. And so, you know, Um, when it comes to teaching style, there's definitely the things that I felt were really great about his teaching. I obviously try to replicate. And then the areas where I felt that were a little bit weak, um, I've tried to say, Hey, let me see if this, you know, this works better. Let me see if this, uh, teaching this way or, or using this type of approach to teaching, uh, will help students learn a little bit quicker. Um, so for example, like one of the things that, um, that Hickson, used to do a lot in class um, is he would teach a technique from one position and then he would go to another position and show another technique and then show another technique from another position. So things were a little bit disjointed. You would get each technique and get really, really in depth on how each technique works and all of the little details that help make it work really, really efficiently. Um, And then you would jump to another, you would jump to another technique and you would see like in depth, the details of that technique. And for me, I think with jujitsu, the way that jujitsu is, is trained, everything is so interconnected. And so one of the things that I do when I teach is I try to connect everything so that the students can see, Hey, from this situation, things can go this way or this way. And from there they go this way or this way, because 
instead of leaving it for the students to have to figure that out for themselves, what comes next or what can happen from here, you give them that information already and say, okay, well, from this situation, when you're doing this, your opponent might be able to do this, or they might be able to do this, or they might be able to resist or defend by doing this. And then this is how you'll deal with it. So um, I think that's really, really important. And that's something that I kind of just started doing on my own because I felt it was a better approach to help students learn. And so for me too, man, I'm always trying to become a better teacher. Um, you know, I'm never set in my ways. I'm always trying to see like, Hey, is there a different approach? Like that's one of the things when I, every time I go and teach a seminar, I actually go back and take some time to myself after the seminar and think to myself, well, okay, where were the students struggling? Where were there a lot of questions coming up? What could I have done better to explain it so that there's less confusion or if, a bunch of people had a ton of questions about a similar thing. I'll say, Hey, I need to remind myself that next time I teach this topic that I do a better job of explaining this in more detail because there was a lot of confusion here. So I'll actually go back through my head and do a checklist and kind of reassess my performance, you know, because I mean, I think any, for any of us that are really passionate about what we do, we always want to do the best job that we can. And, um, that's always been a, a great tool for me is kind of just going back through the seminar in my mind and also the cool thing is I get to watch these seminars because I usually have a camera guy with me recording um, everything and seeing where was their confusion or what could I have done better to, to help the students, you know, in that, in that short period of time we have together. So it's, the reason I ask is, um, you know, obviously the, the, the questions about Hickson are natural, right? Like I'm sure whatever conversations and podcasts you've done, the topic of Hickson comes up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in your own light, um, you know, you are world renowned for, you know, your expertise, uh, your technical ability and your ability to teach jujitsu. And so, you know, the folks that know you like, like, like Dave and, and John Frankel, you know, I, I asked them about you before we went on the podcast. I was like, you know, so like, like what's, you know, um, and th- their overwhelming response, like, it's just different. Like training with Henry is just different. And I know that's a difficult question to ask and you kind of, it's, it's an, it's an opportunity like, it feels like you're bragging about yourself, but is it, is it your philosophy? Is it your approach to training? Is it something different altogether or all of the above? Like, what do you think? Gosh, I know uh, that's not an easy question. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so vague, right? It's just different. And, and then you, the next question is how is it different? Um, I, I'm not quite sure, you know, why, why people have that experience of, of it being so different. I know I put a lot of time into my teaching. I put a lot of time and energy and effort into my teaching. Um, I mean, I have to give credit always back to Hickson. I mean, he, he passed on so much incredible knowledge to me, um, you know, over the years that, I mean, I, I would never have had the knowledge or the mindset to even break down techniques. That was like a huge thing I took from him is seeing, how he would analyze even new positions, new things that would come out that he had never seen before and see how he could develop an understanding in a very quick period of time, uh, in a very short period of time, um, understanding the technique and sometimes even improving on the technique that he just learned. Um, So, you know, I, I think maybe what is so different that a lot of people experience is a lot of my teaching is focuses on the fundamentals the basics and things that people have already been doing for years and years and years and things that people in their mind have already said, this is the way that it's done. I've been doing it for 20 years and this is how I know how to do it. And this is what everyone else teaches. Um, 
And then what I do is I come along and I show them one or two or three different adjustments or details that changes everything. And so now the, the thing that was used to be the norm for them, or this is the normal way of doing it. This is what I've done for, you know, these are all techniques that people already know now become different. There's a different way of doing it, which increases the efficiency of the technique by 20, 30, 40%. And, that, and that's huge, you know, especially with the fundamentals. Everything starts with the fundamentals. You might go to a crazy guard or you might, you know, invert and do all that stuff, but it starts with the close guard. So if you can make your close guard better, it, it would have that very high level of efficiency impact on your jiu-jitsu, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you're, when you're doing any sport or any, any physical activity, you know, it always goes down to, it always comes back to the fundamentals, mastering the fundamentals. You know, I mean, look at the best boxers in the world, the best basketball players in the world, the best, what are they doing? They, they're, they're drilling their fundamentals every single day. You know, you look at Floyd Mayweather, who's considered one of the greatest boxers of our generation. He's still practicing his jab, right? He doesn't go, okay, I know the jab already. Let's get fancy and let's do some other stuff, right? He's still, I mean, there's, there's stories about Kobe Bryant he would show up two hours before Lakers practice and he would be dripping wet with sweat by the time the rest of the team would show up. He's there's stories and legends about how hard of a worker he was. He would sit there and do free throws for two hours or he would sit there. And that's, I think one of the beefs that he always had with Shaq, Shaq being a horrible free throw guy and they would lose so many games because you know, everyone knows foul Shaq and he's, you know, he's, he's not going to make the free throws. Kobe was one of those guys that would show up and do layups for two hours. So it's just one of those things where I don't think you can ever get good enough at the fundamentals. And like anything, um, things that you don't practice, you end up getting rusty on, you know, you talk to world champions at shooting, you know, they're still focusing on their breath and their trigger pull and all the, so I think with everything in life, sports, um, physical activities, it always goes back to, kind of not only mastering the fundamentals, but staying sharp with the fundamentals. Right. How many hours you put in a lot of hours back in the day when you first started, I heard, right? Like you were at the Academy open to close. Yeah. I mean, I don't even, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I think weekly, you know, when I, when I thought about it in my head, um, the schedule back then, because that, that was pretty much the thing. When I moved to California, I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any distractions. So I was basically showed up at the school first thing. And that was, that's what I came for. I moved to California to train. And so I would show up in the, in the morning when the school opened up at like six or seven o'clock in the morning and then be there till like seven or nine o'clock at night. Um, and so I think when I was doing the weekly uh, numbers, it was like something like 60 hours a week or something like that. Something, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. It's a long week. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is I, you know, for me, it was just going there. And of course I would try to train as many classes as I can. Sometimes I do five classes a day. And then some days, you know, I, I would just, my body be break broken down and I would take a two or three days off, but I would still show up to the Academy and watch the classes. So, you know, learning doesn't have to be just the physical aspect of training, but getting it into your mind, watching training, watching people train, seeing how people are doing things, you know, visualization that, you know, there's so many coaches that talk about how powerful a tool visualization is 
for learning and, and, mm-hmm. and getting better. Um, and I think in jiu-jitsu, people, you know, just don't have that world-class coaching and they don't, the funds haven't been implemented in jiu-jitsu to really take the, the training and everything to the highest levels. Like you have it in football and all these other sports where the, the money's just massive. But, you know, we can take lessons from all of these world-class coaches and say, hey, these are, the, these are the guys that have had incredible funding, incredible success, creating championship athletes. What are the tools they're using and how are they training their athletes? And can we take any of these lessons and implement it into our own training to help our own students? Yeah, and I think that's where kind of the, the focus on the fundamentals becomes key because, like you said, it's true in any professional sport you know, the most well-conditioned and, and expert athletes out there are doing that. They're working on those fundamentals. It reminds me of, of watching Hodra come out of retirement to compete. It's like nothing that a blue belt doesn't know from a technical standpoint, like, Hey, it's like you choke like this or you get on the back and you, you know what I mean? And I, I think that is something that separates you from other, you know, there, there's a lot of sport jujitsu academies out there that are focused on going to IBJJF competitions and, and, and winning in the gi with, um, I, I think the, you know, and, and I don't want to speak for you, but the way you learned jujitsu was probably a little bit different that there was a more of a martial impact the way that you learned Hickson's jujitsu. Yeah. De- I mean, it was a different time, right? Um, back when I first started training the IBJJF, they weren't doing international tournaments. I mean, there was you know, we used to have tiny, tiny tournaments, like, you know, you know, in a college wrestling room, right. You didn't have these massive events. Um, competition was kind of an afterthought to training. So what happened was the training always came first. And back then the whole focus of jujitsu was how do we establish to the world that jujitsu is the most powerful single martial art, right? And that was the whole purpose for the the original UFCs, right? Is like, let's take martial artists from different styles, put them in a cage together with no time limit and no no weight divisions, no time limit, um, no rules pretty much. And let's see which guy can uh, do the best with their specific art form. And then after Hoist ended up winning, uh, you know, the first few UFCs, he won the first one, the second one, the third one he pulled out, he won the fourth one. Uh, You know, after that, it became pretty obvious that you need to understand how to, how to train, how to be effective on the ground if you're going to survive. And so what happened after that is it became MMA, right? Everyone started doing, um, but back when I was training, you know, there was still that question, is jujitsu the best? And, during those days, there were challenge matches. So that was very, it was still very alive and well. And so, you know, I talked to all my friends that are kind of old school guys. Um, you know, I was just hanging out. My, one of my best friends is Scotty Nelson, who started on the mat. And, uh, you know, that was the first kind of him and Gumby started. That was kind of the first kind of jujitsu website. And, um, you know, we were talking about back in the day, all the guys that used to come into Half Gracie's, we just share stories about all the fights that used to happen. Guys that would come in from different martial arts that would want to fight. And so that's kind of the mindset we always had to be prepared for is like on any given day, some guy could come into the gym saying, I want to fight. And they would ask one of the students and there was a big chance at my school, it was going to be me because I was there all the time training all the wow. time. You need to fight this guy and show him our stuff works. 
And so um, for me, you know, it, and you know what the first thing they would always say to me when I, when they would call me to fight, they would say, take your gi off. That was my instructor would say, take your gi off. And we would square up on the mats, you know, a t-shirt or, or no shirt or whatever. And we would just get down on the mats. And so the whole idea of using grips or fighting this, asking this guy who's a, a, a kickboxer or Kung Fu guy, Hey, put this gi on before we fight. That just didn't exist, you know? Um, and it was not like, okay, I gotta, you know, see if I can take him down and get two points. It was, that was just completely not even in my mindset. You weren't uh, fighting for an advantage. You know, there's no ref there giving, you know, I wasn't holding position and looking up for points or looking. So, um, I just, you know, at that time, the, the culture of jujitsu was so different. And nowadays, um, I think one of the ways that a lot of schools market themselves and do well, uh, because it's become such a huge business now is to show how many champions they have and show how well they do in tournaments. Um, which is great. And I, I'm certainly not against competition at all, but um, I'm very much of the mindset that first and foremost, what we do is a martial art and it was always intended to be a martial art and it can be practiced in a safe environment and you can compete against other people as a sport when you, you know, create certain rules and systems to, to make it competitive. But first and foremost, um, you know, I think all of jujitsu is always marketed as a self-defense art. You know, no matter what school you go to, they always market themselves as, hey, this is an effective form of self-defense. So let's be honest with the students and, and teach them that and make sure that they're getting that, you know, um, where a lot of the stuff that's being taught nowadays, um, I think, can get people seriously hurt or injured if they were trying to use it in a self-defense environment. So, you, you know, even for people, if, you're, if you want to teach your students like competition style jujitsu or, or then I think there, there needs to be a certain level of honesty and integrity that goes along with it. Like, Hey, just so you know, this is not going to help you in a street fight, but we do this for competition. And so students aren't misled, you know, because a lot of times what happens is a student goes into the school, they say, wow, man, I heard so much about jujitsu and that guy Hoist Gracie was beating everyone up with it. And, you know, I know that all the guys in the UFC do jujitsu or they train some type of jujitsu that's what I want to learn, you know? And then when they go there to learn, they put all of their faith in the instructor that the instructor is going to be teaching them these things. And then next thing they know, they're, they're playing some type of like crazy lasso guard, right? Flying guard switch, right? Sometimes where people are like saying, Hey, you can learn self-defense, but then they they just go straight to the sport jujitsu lapel guard type thing or something. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I mean, who knows? I don't, I don't think a lot of times necessarily the instructor is trying to be deceitful or trying to, I think a lot of times what they're saying, what they're doing is they're trying to pass on what they know, but there's a certain level of um, accountability that you have to take too, and, and, and responsibility that each instructor has to take in taking a look at themselves and saying, Hey, you know, if I'm teaching, if I have a student that comes in, they want to learn how to defend themselves on the street is what I'm showing them going to, going to help them, going to help them stay safe? Is it going to serve what they're here for? Or should I tell them, Hey, listen, you know, yeah, I know I would love to to take your money, but I think going to this other school would probably serve you better if that's what your main focus is. Right. 
So it's funny that you bring up Scotty Nelson because I think I attribute this quote to him anyway. I don't know. I'm pretty sure he said it, but I remember seeing him a long time ago in a video say, jujitsu was developed to beat all the other martial arts. And then modern jujitsu is like designed to beat jujitsu. I know he stole that from me. <laughs> I told him and then he, you, yeah, but he, he, he is quoted as saying that. Absolutely. I'm going to start attributing that to you. So, and that's, that's, so, so that's what I, you know, that's, you know, we, cause we, we're, we're such good friends. We, we talk about jujitsu all the time. And even though his life has kind of gone in a different direction now, um, you know, it's still his, his passion. And so, uh, it, we, it always goes back to those first days of the UFC and how we originally used to train. Like when we used to train, it was how do we train to beat a Kung Fu guy, a karate guy, a, a judo guy? How do we develop ourselves to be able to beat all these martial arts and try to understand what they're doing uh, and try, how do we develop a system to be able to overcome that? Where nowadays jujitsu practitioners are only training to beat other jujitsu practitioners, right? That's the whole competition. And, Oh, this guy's got this grip and, and so you see like a, you know, back in the day, it was very, very common that we would train with strikes. And I think nowadays in most schools, that's very rare, which is sad. Um, back in the day, you know, there were a handful of schools all across the country. That's why I had to move from Oklahoma to California to, to learn jujitsu. You couldn't find it in Oklahoma. It just, or anywhere close to there, you know, um, Carlos Machado didn't even come to Dallas until a few years after I would have moved to Dallas. If Carlos was down there, if I, there was someone closer, Dallas is like two hours away from Oklahoma city, two and a half hours away from Oklahoma city. But I, at the time he was still in California. So I had to move to California to learn halfway across the country to learn jujitsu. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just, it just wasn't available. There was a handful of schools and back then it was always still that mindset, you know, um, the UFC hadn't, transitioned into MMA yet. It was still, what is the best martial art? And what's crazy about those days, like people, I think people forget how crazy it was back then. You had to fight three guys in one night to win. Insanity. Nowadays, it's, you have gloves. Nowadays, there's rounds, you know, back then it was no time limit. You could fight for 15 minutes straight, 20 minutes straight with, and no weight divisions and no gloves. And if, if you guys remember, there's a really famous match. Strikes to the groin were allowed. Keith right. Hackney like, and Joe Son, right? You could headbutt, right? You could do all kinds of crazy elbows. And so it was a completely different, uh, a different world back then. The, the expression of, of, of the art and um, what the art, what we were trying to achieve back then with, with jujitsu. Once it established itself, then everyone's like, Oh, jujitsu is the best. And then it, what happened was, you know, over time people stopped challenging those challenge matches kind of dwindled down and everyone started learning jujitsu. And, and so it's kind of, I feel that in a sense um, it's kind of lost that mindset of um, the practical effectiveness of jujitsu for a street fight. And one of the, one of the arguments I always hear is like, Oh, well, if you have one of the Mendez brothers or one of these competition guys, they could do really, really well in a street fight. And absolutely, of course, they're going to develop the skill and they know how to move their body and their, 
you know, they're physically tough from all the years of training and they're mentally tough from, from, from going through the training, but could you put them into an MMA world and have them do well? Well, probably not. I mean, there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of really, really well-known, really uh, amazing jiu-jitsu competitors that tried to transition into MMA that didn't do well. I mean, Marcelo Garcia, Andre Galvo, uh, Solo. I mean, those, these guys are the greatest in the world of jiu-jitsu competition, right? When you talk about the best competitors in jiu-jitsu, I mean, those names, Solo, Hibero, uh, Marcelo, those guys are always considered the goats. But when you look at their performance in MMA, when you change things up, you know, with striking, um, their, their experience and their performance, it, it wasn't so, it wasn't so well. Yep. I was going to say, just to, just to contrast that, I mean, we've talked to, to Chris Howder, you know, and we've spent a lot of time with him and he says, as long as there are games, there will be people that are uh, bending the rules to suit, to, to win the game. Right. And that in, in, in competition jujitsu, it's a different scenario. Right. And so winning the game means something different than winning the fight. And the, the folks you're talking about, you know, obviously they are the, you know, some of the greatest in jujitsu ever, um, but it's a different game. And so if you didn't come up playing that game, you're actually, changing from what you have traditionally done to adapt it to do something else, as opposed to saying, this is exactly what I've always done. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, like people should, these quotes don't get shared enough, but like Solo said, you know, he, he's a black belt and world champion in jiu-jitsu, but when it came to MMA and fighting, he's a white belt, you know, Hadra Gracie said like 30% of the jiu-jitsu that he does you know, in competition works for MMA. So a lot of these guys that tried to transition over felt like they had to start from the beginning again or start at a huge disadvantage when it it doesn't have to be that way or it shouldn't be that way, you know? Um, But, but again, like I said, that, that, that's type of training, you know, when you talk about jujitsu being uncomfortable, right. And making yourself uncomfortable, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, when you add striking to the mix that multiplies it by 10. (laughs) And so, you know, if you think just hard training is difficult or mentally challenging, try doing it when there's punches and knees and elbows involved, that adds a whole new level of panic and uncomfortableness. Um, you know, most people can learn to adapt and be comfortable with just grappling and someone grabbing your limbs and trying to twist your limbs. But when you're throwing, when you're, you know, getting punched in the face three or four times before you can tap out. That's, you know, that's different. And, and I think that's changed the dynamic of the jujitsu folks that are now successful in MMA. Like we saw Damian Maya obviously be wildly successful with, again, by the way, fundamental jujitsu, right? Um, and uh, now some of the different folks that you're seeing, folks like Ryan Hall or Gary Tonin, that are out there kind of really doing some, you know, very advanced jiu-jitsu techniques and, and mixed martial arts and doing it really successfully. What do you think about folks like that that are kind of changing the game and bringing kind of modern jiu-jitsu to the, to the octagon? Well, I, I think it's awesome. All the guys that are basically, you know, obviously showing how effective jiu-jitsu um, can be in. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's, great those guys um but you know if you even ask those guys they don't train the same way they don't train 
competition jujitsu when they're going to compete in MMA, right? They've had to change. I mean, I remember, so I was at my gym, Dynamics Martial Arts, and John Danaher was there doing a seminar, and I think Gary was in town, and he had come back from, uh, he had come into Dynamics, and he had some boxing gloves with him. I'm like, oh, you're, you know, you're training. So, you know, he's training with strikes, because that's what he has to get used to and develop, and that's what he's going to encounter in those situations. And jujitsu used to be trained with strikes. Jujitsu used to be trained with punches and it's not anymore, you know? Um, and so I think that there's a huge uh, disservice to a lot of students because they're not being exposed to the things that they should be being exposed to in order to really learn how to express jujitsu effectively in a self-defense situation where they need to protect themselves or someone they care about. That's a great point. That's amazing. Hey, can I switch gears for a second and go back? Because a couple of years ago, I got to train and hang out with this guy, Luis Heredia. And yep. you trained Limo. under him for a long time, right? Absolutely. Limo. I love, I love Limo. Um, he's, he's an incredible teacher and coach. Um, he's definitely uh, was a huge inspiration to me growing up. So, um, he was one of my instructors for the first five years that I was training, uh, underneath Hickson. He was, uh, the first time I showed up when I was during that break, he was a brown belt. And then when I had come back and had moved to California full time, he had gotten his black belt in between that time. Um, and so he was one of the main teachers at the school. And, uh, so man, he, he helped me so much and, um, was just a, a huge inspiration and motivation for me for, for training. Um, and then around 2000, the year 2000, he ended up moving to Maui and opened up a school in Maui. And, um, you know, he's got a great life, amazing life over there. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I love Luis Heredia and, um, he's, you know, he's a great, great teacher and helped me so much, uh, in my early years. I mean, what was, I, it? Yeah. What was it about him that he did that was inspirational and, and, So one of the, you know, one of the, the, the things I think with a lot of uh, teachers is there are teachers that are really, really good at um, teaching and breaking things down and explaining. And then what you have is coaches, people that can inspire you to do more than what you would have normally done by yourself or can inspire you and motivate you to achieve higher standards. And so that was one of the things that I like Hickson for me was an amazing teacher, but he wasn't a great coach. Meaning if you wanted to do it great, if you don't want to do it, no problem. Right? So he wasn't one of those people that would push you and push you to, to do more. He was just very, very, Hickson's always very chill. He's always like, ah, no problem. He's, he, he's just so easy going. Limon was one of those guys that would motivate you, inspire you. Come on, man, let's go. Let's work harder. Like, like one of those guys that you'd want to quit or you'd be like, you know, you'd have five hard rounds and you'd be like, oh, I need to sit out. I'm like, no, dude, you're not sitting out. You're so he was one of those guys that would inspire you. Like, man, let's go harder. Let's train harder. Like, oh man, if I don't show up to class tonight to train, Limon's going to be calling me and saying like, dude, where were you at? What happened to you? You know? So one of those people that, just helps you to become a better version of what you would have normally done by yourself. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I mean, and he's not a big guy. He's a pretty small guy. Like It's a uh, small guy. He did a lot of those challenge matches back in the day, too. He'll tell you, he can share with you the stories. And so, I mean, back then, you know, he was like 145 pounds. So you see a 145 pound guy getting down and scrapping with dudes on the mat, you know, and that's the crazy thing. Like, boom, it would be geese off shirts off and you just square down a square up with a dude on the mat and it would just be bare knuckles. Um, so yeah, you know, to see him, you know, he was like a little pit bull. <laughs> someone, someone needs to get a message to him that Georgie law in Portsmouth, New Hampshire said that Luis was small. No, listen, he, no, you no, can't he see George, you can't see George, but he's standing on a soapbox right now. <laughs> <laughs> he, Louis, Louis loves me, dude. Me and him are the same size. That's why I bring him up. Me yeah. and him are the same size. I heard, I read somewhere, you got thrown into challenge matches like right off two months in, right? Yeah, two months in, it was my first one. I, and, and, you know, take it that I was, the amount of time that I was spending there training um, and also being just, 20 years old and young and just full of testosterone and gung ho, all of those elements definitely helped. But I, my two months was probably most people's like six months, eight months a year, you know, the amount of time I was investing into jujitsu. I mean, like I said, I was doing five classes a day, most of the time, you know, and then there would come a time where after like three or four weeks or so I would start to get broken down and I would take a day or two off and just come and watch classes. But yeah, I was just going hardcore. Um, but yeah, I was two months in, it was my first experience with a challenge match. Um, and there had been, you know, multiple challenge matches before, but, uh, yeah, it happened super early in the morning. One morning guy named Kung Fu Joe, who, uh, I owe, owe a lot to, um, guy, he, you know, he'd been doing Kung Fu for like 20 years or 25 years or something in jiu-jitsu. He was kind of, it was a little bit out of his mind, a little bit like kind of a crazy dude that came in. He was throwing flying stars into this wooden wall that we had. Uh, like I said, like, like, yeah, he was just out of his mind and he'd come in like, th this was the third morning in a row he had come in and was watching the class and he was kind of off to the side, just kind of making like remarks and being disrespectful and like laughing. And then the instructor finally goes, dude, you've been coming in here for the last three days and, you know, being disrespectful. He goes, what's your problem? He goes, are you here to fight? Do you want to fight? And the guy goes, yeah. And so the, the instructor that day, his name is Jason Krikorian, uh, who was a brown belt. Um, you know, and at, at that time, if you were a brown belt, you were like a God in jujitsu, right? There was so, there was like, 10 or 15 brown belts in the whole United States, you know? So, uh, he goes, uh, to this other student who had been training longer and was a lot bigger than me. Uh, this guy named Joe, he goes, Joe, take your gear off. You're going to fight this guy. And, um, I saw Joe look up at him. We were all sitting down the mat. I saw Joe look up to him and I just saw like fear in his eyes. I like, I can't like, no, 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 not me, not me. And I was just like, I'll do it. You know, I was like 20 years old. I was like, what the heck? You know, I, I've been in a few fights. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen to me? You know, took off my gi and we scrapped and I just immediately clinched, took him down. He gave up right away, uh, tapped out. And then Jason says, whoa, 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 whoa. He's like, you're not allowed to tap just because you, you guys are falling on the ground. That's like Henry who doesn't, you know, do stand up. He doesn't train stand up. That's him tapping because he's not comfortable on his feet. You guys are going to fight, you know, you keep. And then he looked at me and said, once you guys hit the ground, keep going, you know, 
So I, he just tapped out and I was like, you know, just being respectful. Whoa. Okay. He tapped and he gave up. I'm, I'm off him. But, uh, so the next time he was waiting for me to clinch caught me when I was coming in. Um, I, you know, it's so funny. I had long hair at the time and my hair got in my face. So right after that is when I shaved my head to this and I had this haircut for like 20 years. And then like a couple of years ago, I grew my hair back out and then I shaved it again. But anyways, I used to have my hair long, but my hair got in my face, it clipped me. I still ended up clinching and taking him down. And then when I got on top of him, he got me in a headlock and I was just cracking him. And then eventually I caught him in an arm lock a few seconds later. Um, and then, and then, you know, afterwards we had this conversation, he sat on the bench next to me, uh, and he was just so depressed and had this, he basically said to me, he goes, man, he goes, I've been doing martial arts for most of my life. And I always believed that when the time came for me to get in a fight, that it was going to work. And he goes, you're just a white belt. He goes, man, I have like all these sashes in Kung Fu and ninjutsu. And he's like, I can't believe none of this stuff that I've been training all my life didn't work. And I, I to me, it was such a huge disappointment. You could see it was like he wasted half of his life, you know, training in something in this thing that he believed was going to work. And it was just not effective when it came down to it. And so that was such an impactful moment for me because that was something that's always stuck in the back of my head. Like I want to make sure that I'm doing something that if the day ever came where I needed it to protect myself, defend myself or defend someone I care about that it's going to work. And that's why I've always kept this practical approach to jujitsu where first and foremost, it's, it's about fighting. And then if you want to use it for competition or use it for sport or use it for anything else, it can be there, but you have to first and foremost know that if you ever need it to save your life, it's going to work. Hey, would any of these guys like Kung Fu Joe ever sign up after? So he did sign up. He signed up for a couple months right after. And that was the whole thing about the challenge matches. I mean, that was the whole that was the whole thing about challenge matches back then is like, we're going to come show you how ineffective your art is and show you how effective our art is and see how easily we can dispatch of you. And then you're going to sign up. You're, so most people would become believers after that. Some people would just have their egos crushed and hurt so bad. They're just not willing to change or shift. But for most people, you know, they're like, so Kung Fu Joe did sign up. Uh, he, he signed up. So. I mean, you got to love the fighting spirit, man. It doesn't, not anybody's just going to go in there and chuck throwing stars at Hickson's Academy. <laughs> well, back then, nobody, nobody, I mean, that was back in the day, nobody really knew there was not quite the fame. Like, Hickson didn't right. have the name yet. He had done, uh, like, the first two Valley Tudos in, uh, in Japan, but um, hadn't started doing the prize yet, and you know, it just grew and grew and the Gracie name grew over time, but this is still very, very early days where people were still very much of the mindset of like, Oh yeah, those guys are okay, but I could beat them. You know, it hadn't been really like established yet. You you talk about like this, the Kung Fu Joe, it was, you know, it's, it is a little sad, you know what I mean? For a guy like 20 years of his life spent training in an art that now he doesn't believe in. And I think that's kind of part of our responsibility, right? Is, you know, there is interstyle and we train with lots of different academies and we go and we compete all that time, but it's also like, look, 
for anybody that's looking to learn self-defense. And it's like, people are crazy. Like, you know, people are looking at George Dillman videos. Like, I can't believe this guy can put a hundred people in a room and teach them how to do no touch knockouts. You know what I mean? Like we need to like spread the truth, the good word of jujitsu and be like, you need, need to start, stop uh, worshiping false deities and learn to grab yeah, that's what's so crazy about martial arts in general, right? There's so much, um, it's kind of like religion. There's so much belief system around so many martial arts. Like this guy that's in China, this MMA fighter that's going around beating up all the old masters, right? I mean, man, that serves a purpose. You need to bring people into the modern world and really teach people what the truth is. What really works and what's really going to help you. And you have all these old Kung Fu masters that have been training their whole life. And you would think by that time they would have developed some level of mastery or expertise of whatever art they're training. Well, does it really work? You know? And I think that was, that was the whole purpose for Bruce Lee's uh, expansion out of Wing Chun and him trying to develop uh, the JKD system was, Hey, let's keep what works and let's throw out everything else. And you know, a lot of these ancient, uh, masters, these, these teachers that had been teaching a specific style or system for so long were so against that they were stuck in this mindset and the belief is this is the, our system, this is the way we do things. And with the belief that it's just going to work when you get in a fight because everything is choreographed. The training was choreographed. You know, um, that's one of the things. So I, I don't know if you guys heard, I, I recently joined up with SBG and um, I recently joined their organization, which, of course, John Frankel is is uh, a part of. And me and John have become really, really good friends over the last few years. But, um, you know, Matt Thornton, who is the head of their organization, came from that background. And that's one of the things that he really, um, the mindset that he really tries to instill in all of the coaches in that organization. And one of the reasons why I, I feel so connected to them is because of that mindset of, we need to make sure that we're, we're constantly searching for the truth, the truth of what works and the truth of what's going to be effective in a, in a, in an actual fight, in a real situation. Um, you know, and, and just be being honest. And there's a certain level of integrity and responsibility that we as instructors have to have to our students, right? When a student comes to me and says, Hey, I want to learn self-defense or I want to learn this art jujitsu, which I heard is so great for fighting that I'm helping them with that and not teaching him these Kung Fu moves that if he ever were to use in a fight, he's going to get his ass kicked. And that's the, the that's uh, Matt's philosophy behind calling it straight blast, right? Is to kind of pay homage to that, use what works. And if it doesn't throw it away. Right? Yeah, I think so. That's awesome. Hey. So, I, uh, sorry, Gordon, George. No, go ahead, man. All right. I, I have a couple, uh, Hicks and true false or I don't know. <laughs> so there's like a million Hicks and stories out there. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot like through the years, I'm also pretty old and, um, and so How I've, long have you guys been training. Uh, I've been training since 99. Okay. Um, so I am really old. <laughs> How about you, George? I've been training 10 years, but I'm older than you, Jay. Right. Right. Uh, so I heard, uh, the first one is I heard that, um, that Hornian originally tried to target Hickson to be the representative in the initial UFCs. Is that true? Or do you know? So 
I was not there part of the conversation, but in my understanding, um, that was never the case that Hickson was going to be the one originally in the UFCs. And um, I'll just share a, a little background because from my understanding, Hickson was, was known to be a little bit harder to control, meaning um, he kind of had a mind of his own and, and wanted to do his own things and had his own ideas. And, and um, Horian being the older brother, uh, that's why they chose Hoist. Now, the other reasons that they, they decided with Hoist first and foremost is um, they always had Hickson in the back. So if Hoist ever lost, they felt they could always put Hickson in to uh, represent the family. Um, and the other thing with Hoist too is he was not physically as physically intimidating as Hickson. And so that was one of the reasons, um, you know, the first UFC Hickson trained Hoist in the first UFC and trained Hoist in the second UFC. He trained him for both of those. Um, and my understanding was that they, they never uh, financially um, took care of him for, for training Hoist for those events. Hoist got a payday and Horian was at the time owner of the UFC, um, but Hickson never got, uh, you know, any, any type of financial, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Compensation. Kind of compensation. He never got financially compensated for that. And so uh, I think there was a little bit of a falling out. And so uh, in the third UFC, he didn't, he didn't coach Hoist for the third UFC. He didn't train Hoist and wasn't responsible for his training. Um, and for some people, you know, some of the people think that that is one of the reasons why he didn't do so well in the third UFC, which obviously like, you're dealing with a guy like Kimo Leopoldo, who's outweighs you by, you know, a hundred pounds and is, you know, jacked full of testosterone. Anyone's going to have a hard time dealing with an individual like that. But that was the story from the early days that uh, they, they had always pl planned on using Hoist first and foremost, and that they would hold Hickson in the back. And that was the other thing too, is, you know, Hickson's got a family, he's got kids. Um, and he's like, Hey man, why aren't you picking me when I'm the champion of the family to represent? Um, you should be using me. And so that's why he ended up going to Japan and fighting in Japan. Right. Uh, I, I've also heard that, that Hickson has said that at some point he might release the, uh, the, the OG Anjo video that he had from that day. I think it, I, the story goes that he only, he sent it to Japan to prove that he wasn't a liar and that what really happened that day is there. All right. So what, what's your version? Like what, what have you heard? The, the video has been in his hands in a safe for eternity. It's, it's like, it's at his house in a safe or it was always at his house in a safe. Um, and he would pull it out to sometimes show like special guests at his house. Guys would come over to his house and hang out and people would always ask him and he would break out that like grainy VHS tape to, to be able to show people. But it, that, that never got sent to Japan. Um, there was a bunch of members of the Japanese press that were there that day that flew in with Anjo. And so there were already pictures uh, in the Japanese newspaper the next day of, of what happened to Anjo. So... There's a bunch of there's a bunch of documentation and a bunch of pictures and, and front page of the newspaper of his face just completely battered and bloody. And uh, what's so crazy about it is um, Hickson ended up choking him out face down after after, you know, just going to town on his face uh, for 
a good probably 30 seconds just cracking him in the face like relentlessly, you know, and then there's a point where you can hear his nose, the guy's nose break because it was a loud pop um, and Hickson just wouldn't stop. And uh, even like Luis was there and uh, one of the things Luis always says is like in his mind, he was saying, oh, fuck Hickson, like just stop, please. You know, like, like it was getting to that point where guys were getting like a little bit sick because of like, oh man, he's just like putting it on this guy. He ends up turning him and choking him, choking him out. And there was always a, cause we would lay, I would show up in the morning at the school to lay out the mats. We had these fold up mats that we would lay out. Uh, those were our training mats. These, those old uh, little tatami mats, because I remember we shared the place with the karate school. So we had to pull up the mats at the end of the day and lay them out for training. And there was always this one mat with a giant blood stain on it. It was the stain from where Yoji Angio was laying face down in a puddle of blood that never came out. Unreal. Unreal. So that was the, you know, if you saw the, the documentary choke, those green mats, those old green mats. Um, yeah. The, the, it was definitely the, the battleground when you were stepping onto those mats. Um, so I, I've got a, I've got a weird one. So I heard that at one point, um, Hickson went back to Brazil and he went to Baja to train um, and Nino was there and Nino was doing his fighter guard stuff and Hickson still just, he did fine, but he walked away from that. Like, you know, I, like I should have been able to dispatch that a little bit easier and came back a few months later and like he pulled spider guard and the story is that he regripped the sleeves, pulled them up on, in the air, stepped through his guard and arm barred him. Had you ever heard that story before? That was the, like a far-fetched one, one that I that I had heard. So I, I don't know about that story, but I know the first time that um, he really experienced anyone that was good with spider guard was uh, Roberto Traven. And I don't know if you know who Roberto Traven is. His nickname was the Spider. So that's they called it Spider Guard. He was I think he was one of the the fir- the guys that really created Spider Guard. Um, and so I was there that day that uh, Roberto Traven is uh, one of Faber Grisel's students, Faber so from Alliance. And so I was there that day that uh, Hickson was training with um, Roberto. And uh, it was the first time that I think Hickson had really experienced spider guard. And um, he was having a very difficult time passing the guard. Um, and you could see he was getting very frustrated just being held and not being able to go either direction um, and not really get it, being able to uh, do what he wanted. Um, and so I know it was a really, really frustrating training for him. Um, you could see it, you know, and you can see you have no problem telling when Hickson gets frustrated or when he gets, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite clear. And the next day he came back and he completely ripped through his guard and submitted him like multiple times in a row. Um, and what's funny is me and Luis, we're having the conversation the next day because we were just on the sidelines watching the training both days, right? Fabio had come down and I forget, um, he, Fabio would, and Hickson were really close friends and Fabio would come down um, for different portions of time and Hickson, he would train with Hickson and all these guys have stories about Hickson's level, you know? But uh, I remember Luis turning to me and I was probably just a white belt or a blue belt at the time. And he was like, fuck bro i could tell hickson didn't sleep at all last night and this is kind of you know this is kind of hickson's thing is that man his mind the way his mind works and his 
depth of understanding of jujitsu, he probably didn't sleep. He probably just went home and trained all night and tried to figure out the position and figure out what he could do. And um, one of the cool things he would always do is he would always take uh, Hoxon, who was small, just a kid at the time. And um, he would do whatever he wanted to Hoxon and say, hey, try to do this, try to do this. And he would give him different levels of resistance to see, hey, if my kid can do it to me, if it works, then I could probably do it to someone. You know, and so he would always use Hoxon as his kind of training partner, being smaller and weaker to test out things for him to see like, well, shoot, if Hoxon can do this to me, you know, then it works because he's so much smaller and weaker than me. And um, so, yeah, that was, man, there, there I had so many jaw dropping uh, moments and, and kind of moments that were just epiphanies for me and, and times in my experience, training experience that were just like, I look back and were magical and so impactful for me. And that was definitely one of those times was like, holy crap, man. He just came back. Like yesterday he couldn't pass his guard or struggling, struggling hard to pass a guard, like almost passed a couple of times and then recovered. And, you know, and, and they were going like at a good pace. This is, you know, Hickson's in his peak. He was probably 36 at the time. And, um, Hobart was just giving him a nightmare training. And then the next day he comes back and it was just game over, you know? I figured out your game. I know what you're doing. And now, you know, it's over. I got something for you. Yeah. Um, I, I've also heard that, that Hoxon's level got to be really high before he passed. Uh, yeah. He had moved, he had moved to the East coast and stuff like that. But, um, everyone was kind of anticipating when he might step in the ring. And, and all I had heard was that his level was, was getting really, really high in jujitsu before him. Super good. Super good. I mean, we were, we were training partners, you know, so, uh, we were really close friends and, um, he, he was, we were both supposed to get our brown belts at the same time. We were kind of both, um, he was better than me. Um, we were training partners. I would probably one of the, the, the toughest training partners for him at the time. Um, and he was a little bit better than me in that he was about 135 pounds and I was about 185 pounds. And, um, he was just a nightmare to, to deal with. And that's, you know, I learned so much from, from training with him, like, man, his ability to off balance his, uh, his pressure at being only 135 pounds, his ability to put pressure when he was on top was just incredible, you know? Um, and so definitely he was, I mean, he was a beast, you know, he was a little beast. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I definitely miss, uh, miss having him around, miss having, uh, the trainings. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, you know, as much as jujitsu probably missed the opportunity of getting to see him develop and his effect on jujitsu, you know, someone like yourself that grew up with him as a, as a close friend, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So, um, Switching topics, uh, dynamics. Um, so what, like, so, you know, traditionally jujitsu guys, like they, they, they teach jujitsu and, you know, your background obviously is more encompassing than just straight grappling. You know what I mean? It's grappling with strikes and really understanding how the martial component of jujitsu works. It seems like dynamics is, is kind of a move from even labeling yourself as a jujitsu academy to as more of a mixed martial arts academy. So, yeah, so um, I started Dynamics Martial Arts 10 years ago with uh, Anthony Hardonk. And at the time, um, Anthony uh, was a training partner 
with me. Um, he had come from the K one, uh, he had come from a K one background. He's from the Netherlands, you know, and they produce, you know, all of the top K one fighters for the most part. And so, um, his method and style of teaching striking was very similar to my understanding and, um, teaching of jujitsu, meaning like he's just so detailed and understands all the little nuances and stuff like that. Like he came from uh, the Voss gym, which is considered like created more champions, more K1 champions than any other gym. And um, so when we created that school, the main purpose of the school was to really, we want to have a high level of instruction in all the different aspects of, of mixed martial arts. And so we wanted to make sure that people really understood and had a high level of understanding of the striking. Um, we brought Vladimir Matyushenko on board and I'm not sure if you know who Vladimir Matyushenko is. The janitor. janitor. Right. Yeah. So he, he, uh, a lot of people don't know, uh, his wrestling accolades, but he was a six time Soviet national champion for wrestling. And he had beaten all of the top American wrestlers at the time. I mean, he beat Mark Schultz, um, you know, guys that are legendary in wrestling. So his wrestling is just insane. And then also all of his experience in MMA, how to apply wrestling for MMA. And then of course I was the, the jujitsu coach having experience training with Hickson through the years and having, been been around Hickson and trained with Hickson also um, leading up to some of his fights. So that's, you know, we, we just kind of had a very, very similar mindset of like, Hey, you know, fighting is evolving. Um, we want to make sure that we have a school that can really teach students all of the aspects of fighting and, and also at a very, very high level, having high level of instructors to be able to teach every single aspect of it. Um, so that, that was the idea behind dynamics, martial arts. And like I said, I just recently moved to Vegas about a, uh, a year ago. So I ended up selling my, um, my portion of the gym. Um, and I, I'm still very close with all the guys and I, you know, I'll probably go back there and teach seminars and I'm still close with quite a few of the students there. But, uh, yeah, that was the whole idea behind dynamics, martial arts was, um, Anthony at the time, Anthony was just getting ready. He was fighting in the UFC as a heavyweight and he was getting close to retiring. And so we were like, what's next? And at that time too, in 2010, Hickson had just moved back to Brazil. So he had left the school in Crone's hands. Um, and so, he, you know, he was my teacher. So he had kind of left back to Brazil. So, you know, we kind of sat down and talked and we we're like, okay, well, what's next for us? Like Anthony was kind of coming off of fighting, he was like, man, I don't know if I have the motivation to really do this anymore. My, his passion was more towards teaching and creating, you know, high level, um, student, high level, uh, kickboxers. And I had already been, my focus had already been teaching for quite a, a period of time. So I was like, well, that just kind of made sense. It's, it's interesting. The combination of, uh, the, the philosophies that you have here, one is, kind of give jujitsu back its true self. But the other is also let's not ignore what those other arts have to offer. You know, like, you know, you, you had your Kung Fu Joe experience, but you also have the Andy Hardonk experience where like, if your hands drop, you know, you're going to wake up 10 minutes later. Um, so that's like a really interesting mix that you're like very focused on the martial application of jujitsu, but also your eyes are open to these other martial arts that have, that certainly have, 
things to offer that are that are valuable for the martial artist? Well, I mean, you know, like one of the things, and, and this goes kind of back to Hickson, one of the things he said, I mean, you have to understand what other arts are trying to do if you want to be able to defend yourself against them, right? Um, and really kind of fighting, MMA is, is really what fighting is about. It's kind of like the, the now, the, the most pure expression of fighting. I think the closest that you can get is what MMA is today, where they're using their body in however way they need to be able to defeat their opponent. Um, so, one of, you know, I don't think a lot of people know this, but Hickson uh, did some training with Sugar Ray. And one of the things that he, Hickson told me personally, he said, if you want to learn punch defense, don't learn it from a grappler. <laughs> so, he, so, and he was explaining to me punch defense, and he was like, if you want to learn how to defend yourself from punches, you go to a guy who's been learning how to defend from punches for his whole career. So he had done some training with Sugar Ray. Uh, they, they did a D.A.R.E. campaign together way back in the day. And I don't know if you guys remember what D.A.R.E. was. Um, I think it was like a, a drug, drug awareness. Resistance, uh, yeah. education. So it was like a drug. And it was him uh, for the campaign. It was him, um, Sugar Ray, uh, Steven Seagal, and I think Billy Blanks was the other guy. It was like, you know, these four martial artists. So he, he got included in that campaign. I think that's where he met Sugar Ray. And I think he did some, some training with him. But um, I mean, it was that, that always stuck out of my head. Like, wow. Okay. That's really powerful. Don't learn uh, how to stand up and defend punches against a guy that's a grappler because he's probably not going to know much about her. He hasn't probably put so much time into it that he understands that aspect in depth. Um, So yeah, that's always, I'm always interested in martial arts, man. I'm always interested in, I'm always trying to learn, always trying to develop myself, always trying to see what else is out there. Um, and then apply it to helping me become a better teacher. Hey, so let me ask you this, man, because you know, jujitsu to me is been, is very therapeutic, right? Like, and without it for the last six weeks, it's kind of like exposed, you know, maybe holes in my game or something of, of life. And so I started practicing meditation and yoga um, and mindfulness. And so it's been interesting, but do you, pra- you practice those things? And, and or, or do you practice any you, of that? You need to go to the 10-day completely silent meditation retreat, the Vipassana. I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> Nobody, I mean, unless you've done it, you're not ready, but dude, talk about an eye-opening experience, life-changing experience, probably one of the most powerful things I've ever done in my life. 10 days of complete silence and going within your mind and going within yourself. Um, you you want to talk about uh, self-awareness and, and learning about how crazy your mind is and, and all of these thoughts that are kind of going on in your unconscious mind that are kind of repeating themselves. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I love meditation. It's such a useful tool and it's such a, a powerful practice. It's something that I actually, I'm trying to get back into now myself. Um, that's, it's one of my goals for this coming year is to try to do, uh, go back and do the 10 day silent meditation retreat again. When did you do that? I did it, um, six years ago, six years ago. Yeah. Probably six years ago. And it was life changing for me. I mean, it was, it was, 
incredible. One of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life, but also one of the most rewarding things and difficult, meaning not physically difficult, but mentally difficult. A, A lot of times, I don't think people understand how hard, uh, meditation is. It's, it's difficult, man. And especially because with the Vipassana technique, they have you focusing on your breath. And like any of us, anytime we, like for me, when I do something, I want to do it well. And so you're meditating like 12 to 14 hours a day, right? You're, and you're just to yourself. So there's no communication. They take your cell phone, no computer. Um, you're not, there's other people at the retreat but you're not allowed, you know, they ask you not to even make eye contact because that can be a form of communication. And so it's really just about going within yourself. And, uh, man, the first day of the meditation retreat, um, I'm meditating and literally like my mind would be on my breath. You know, I'm just observing my breath, observing my breath. And literally 10 seconds later, I'm thinking about the craziest shit, like unicorns jumping over rainbows and a guy with a sword. Kind of, <laughs> like, and literally my mind would be off for like, you know, two minutes thinking of like, just wander off for two minutes. And then I'd be like, shit, I'm not meditating. And then you're supposed to bring your, your awareness back to your breath. And it was like that all day, the first day. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is so hard. And it's so frustrating because I'm like, man, this is, it sounds so easy. Just observe your breath, but it's so difficult. And I think just with modern life, how our brains are constantly jumping around, jumping around, jumping around. Like, you know, they say that with cell phones, your attention uh, shortens because you're constantly looking at your cell phone is, you know, something else that's distracting you, something else is distracting you. And they say, even with like YouTube videos or commercials, they say like 15 seconds or 20 seconds is how long you can keep most people's attention nowadays. And so they specifically do like ads and stuff like that within that time span. So it was, it was such an interesting experience, but um, man, to really that, that experience of going in 10 days and just going, you know, gung ho all the way, is, is the only way that you can do it. And that's why they actually have it set like that, that you actually have to commit yourself to 10 days because you won't get the benefits unless you really commit yourself and, and do it like that. You won't really get to the point where you're noticing the benefits and understanding, really developing the technique. It takes usually that much time. I can't even imagine because dude, 10 minutes and um, my mind has thought a million different thoughts all over George's, the spectrum. George has not gone 10 minutes without taking a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, man. I recommend And you know what's so crazy about the Vipassana meditation, and I recommend it to anyone, it's free. Um, and so you, you, you have to you, you sign up for it. Um, there's a lot of times a waiting list, and there's centers all across the United States. And um, what's awesome about it is for the whole time you're there, they give you shelter, they give you a place to sleep and they give you food. So you don't have to worry about anything except yourself and practicing the technique. And it's really about just personal development, you know, and I'm, I'm huge in that. I'm really, really big in that area. Um, I'm always trying to improve myself. And I think jujitsu is one of the most powerful tools I've ever discovered for personal development and being aware of your, your body and your thoughts. But this was just like another level and um, it's so cool because the whole thing is free. They offer it to every, anyone. And at the end, 
you can make a donation to the center if you feel that the course was impactful or helpful for you. And um, so it's really uh, just an incredible, uh, an incredible thing that anyone out there can do if, uh, if you want to get into meditation. I mean, and you really want to just commit and just go for it. Uh, the 10-day Vipassana silent meditation, I can't recommend highly enough. So it it's sounds amazing. I'm, I'm afraid of what I'll find in here. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. I, I, I had no idea. Your, your mind is so nuts and it's so crazy. And all these thoughts that are coming that you, it, it's, we're just completely unconscious of. Um, and so you kind of get to learn to observe them and, and see like, wow, my mind is crazy. And it's weird because you almost have an out-of-body experience and you start to realize that you are not your mind, that your consciousness is here and that your mind is, it, it almost seems like there's two people within one body. It's it's a really, really bizarre um, awareness and, 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 and becoming conscious. It was like, wow, this is so crazy. I'm not consciously thinking these things, but these are the things that are coming into my mind. And that's not me. And that's not what I'm trying to think. And that's so um, it gives you a whole new understanding and perspective on yourself. That's amazing. I got to check that out. I when I left, so I was going through a pretty dark time uh, and it was actually one of my buddies that recommended it to me to do the course. He was like, Hey man, I know you're struggling. I know you're, you know, having some, some stuff going on in your life right now. And he goes, I think this would be really good for you. And um, I, at that point I was like, man, I'll try anything. You know, I, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of down in a hole right now. And uh, whatever, whatever it, it can do to help me, I'm, I'm up for trying. And, um, man, after, after I got out of it, it literally felt like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. It was crazy. And it, we don't realize, I think most of us don't realize how much we stress out and we create our own stress about things that are insignificant in life. We make so many things in life significant that are not significant. Um, and so that's a, one of the huge takeaways I had from that experience is like, when I was going in, like, I was like, Oh my God, 10 days, I'm not going to be able to talk to anyone. What if someone dies or what if someone in my family gets sick or what if this happens or what if this happens? And after the 10 days, by the eighth day, I didn't want to leave. I was so at peace. And then by the 10th day, when I left, I didn't even want to look at my phone. I didn't want to answer any emails. I didn't want to, cause it was like all that stress coming back into your life about, Oh, I got to get back to this person. I got to get back to this person. I got to do this. I got to do that. And it's like for 10 days, I don't have to do anything. I don't have any responsibilities, but my, me and myself. And it was, it was very freeing. It is, uh, you know, incredible. The, the, the lifestyles that we lead now, a lot of people, you know, there, and there's varying levels of it, right. But the amount of stress that we put ourselves under and the responsibilities that we have uh, and, and, and in a right now ecosystem, right? Like there's no place to hide. You have a phone, you have email, you have, Wherever you go, you can be answering emails, texts, phone calls. Like there's never, you know, this wasn't a good time for me. So people feel professionally like you're almost always connected and always and always having to respond and, and problem solve. And that's, it's, none of it is really true. There's yeah. no phone call that you have to answer. There's no text that you need to respond to. In this world, literally, if there's something you don't want to do, you can choose not to do it. But that concept is, is, is really lost with the lifestyle that kind of we're all brought into. And that really, it feels like it brings things back to center, right? 
Yeah. Well, absolutely. And it's just like, I, you know, you get a text and you feel obligated that you have to respond right away when really there's no obligation. And that's, you know, you hear about, you know, one of the things with cell phones and people are sitting together having lunch and everyone's on their phones, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it definitely kind of takes that away for 10 days. And when you realize like, Hey, I haven't had my phone on me for 10 days and the world is fine. Everyone's perfect. Nothing has changed. No, I, there's, there's no catastrophe or anything like that. And life goes on, man, you feel so much more at peace. You, you realize like, man, all of these things that on a daily basis that I worry about and I stress out about, and I create my own stress, like it's all self-inflicted, right? We, we do it to ourselves, And so. Amazing. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely do some research. I want to learn more about that. That's incredible. And I, and I agree with you. You know, that's my own lifestyle as well. I feel like I'm always connected, right? And it's, 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 a, it's, it's stress that's unneeded. I mean, stress is obviously, you know, it's a poison in your body. It doesn't feel good. It causes you to, you know, even feel physically worse. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. something that there's, there's enough in life that you don't need to create more for yourself. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what's crazy, like talking about this experience that we're all going through right now and this coronavirus and everyone being at home and, and, one of the things like a lot of people I know are losing their minds and going crazy. And for me, it's been actually a quite refreshing experience um, because it feels like everything has slowed down quite a bit. Like normally I'm so hustle and on the grind and on the go and flying out every week and I got to do this and I got to do this. And I'm, I've been so focused on work, 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 hustle and grind and get this done, get this done. It's kind of forced me to just take a break from everything and say, Hey, you don't need to do any of this and you can't do any of it right now. You can't go teach a seminar. You can't do this. Um, and so, man, I've had so much time at the house, time with my family, time to do work around the house. Like what normal people, what I normally people used to do like garden, like I never have gardened in my life. And I've been landscaping my backyard and building a fence uh, around my property and like doing all. So it's kind of, it's been so refreshing because it's created time for me to do things that I always wanted to do, but never felt I had the time to do. Um, and so, yeah, I'm actually been uh, really appreciating this, uh, this quarantine time. That's, that's the thing, man. Like it, it has, it has led me to meditation, right? So I would not, I wouldn't be meditating or doing yoga um, if we weren't in this situation. And Jay, I'm telling you, like, like he said, it's a whole nother thing. Time, like one minute is, is you'd be like, Whoa, like, it's like forever, right? Forever, forever. I mean, it's, it's a whole, it's hard to explain because you know, you think 10 minutes, 10 minutes, no big deal. 10 minutes of trying or focusing on your breath. It's impossible. It's, it's, I mean, you, my mind. If you never meditated. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not possible. Yeah. It's it's not possible if you've never meditated. I mean, I don't want to say it's not possible, but it would be almost impossible for anyone who hasn't, you know, really brought their, their awareness in. I mean, after the 10 days, uh, by probably the, 
like I said, when I first started doing the meditation, the first day of the meditation was like five seconds, 10 seconds. And then my mind would be off for, for two, three minutes at a time. And then I'd have to bring it back. And then it would be another 10, 15 seconds. And then it'd be boom, gone again. And then I have to bring it back. And then one of the things they, they say is don't let that affect you emotionally. It just, it is what it is. Just accept it. And, um, but by probably the fifth or sixth day of doing it 12, 14 hours a day of just sitting in a room or sitting in a meditation hall and just focusing on your breath, I was getting up to a minute and a half. So not even that 10 minutes that you're talking about. This is like a minute and a half. And then what happened was my mind would wander off for 30 or 40 seconds. So much shorter period of time where I was able to bring it back to the meditation. And, um, you know, that's the thing, like anything, it's a practice where it gets better and better and better um, as you do it. Well, I got the free time now. So, um, so listen, I'll have give a bunch a shot, of but there's, there's more than you say, two, there's almost two different people in there. There's like six or seven in here. So we're going to have to keep bar fights from happening. Um, but I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. What, uh, I know that, uh, I mean, nobody really knows what's going on, but what, you got plans to be on the East Coast? When are we all going to hang out, man? Dude, I, I uh, was actually just uh, messaging, you know, Mike Zanga? Yeah. From BTJ Fanatics. So we were just messaging each other back and forth because um, they have a couple of my courses now that they are, are selling uh, on the BJJ Fanatics website. Um, and so uh, we were just chatting back and forth over messages. He's like, man, I can't wait for you to come back out to the East Coast. I'm like, oh, man, I definitely got to plan a trip. So as soon as things start to go back to normal, I'm going to plan out a, a nice, you know, couple day trip to come out and visit. Uh, we're an hour you north. Man. You guys are Boston or? We're an hour north of Boston. Okay. Yeah. So Portsmouth, New Hampshire is a beautiful area. It's, it's, it's like carved out of the seacoast. It's right before you get to the border to Maine uh, oh. place. We'll, we can, we'll definitely do a seminar. Uh, hey, feed you some good East coast barbecue. Lobster. Awesome. Um, one last question for you. Um, and you know, like for me, I feel like you are, and that, uh, don't take this the wrong way. I mean this in a very good way. Like you're, you are one of the folks out there that's kind of has to serve as a custodian of jujitsu, a caretaker of jujitsu for where kind of all of this is headed. And it's a big responsibility. And I think you're doing all the right things. You know what I mean? By keeping, trying to align people to where jujitsu should go. What is your, what is your hope for what has become a lot of different things to a lot of different people as far as jujitsu is concerned, like for the future, like where we take this thing, where would you like to see jujitsu be 10 years from now? You know, um, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. And it's a, it's a tough one to answer because for me, I mean, one of the main things I think is, is so great is that there's just so many people training nowadays, right? It's, it's, I think the last few years, the last 10 years, it's been the fastest growing martial art. There's so many people. And I know just training, regardless of what your mindset is when you're training, regardless of what your focus is, it benefits people in so many different ways, right? Like George was just saying, it's, it's like a therapy for him, right? A mental therapy for him. So whether he's training for self-defense or whether he's training to compete or whether he's training just for fun, like it serves him. It helps him to relieve stress. So for me, you know, it's, it's really tough to say this is where I want things to go or this is because it's, the art is not mine and it's not 
for me, it's, it's for the world. It's for everyone. And so really the main thing for me is that it's, it's serving people and it's helping to make the world a better place. Right. And I think it is doing that. It is certainly doing that in a way because a, um, I think one of the biggest benefits to jujitsu that many people don't talk about is how it brings people together. Right. We have this commonality and especially like I would have never met you guys and had this conversation with you guys today. If, you know, if it wasn't for jujitsu and, you know, I got to talk about meditation and maybe you're going to try meditation now because of this conversation. So, um, I, I think jujitsu is serving its purpose as in it's, it's helping people. It's a tool to help people in whatever aspect of their life that they need it for. For some people, it's losing weight. For some people, it's, it helps people to feel more confident. Like, Hey, I feel like I can fight or I feel more comfortable in a physical altercation, you know, because I'm being physical. I have that experience of people being physically aggressive with me on a daily basis. And that's become a lot more. Now I'm a lot more comfortable with that. Um, you know, of course my, my focus and my mindset will always be to preserving the, that aspect of it where, um, keeping jujitsu as a martial art, um, you know, because, and, th and that's just because of the, the time, how I was brought up thinking about it, you know, how I was trained. So it will always be kind of that for me, that kind of, and I, and I feel there's a certain amount of truth to that, meaning that when students, most students come into a jujitsu school, that is one of their main focuses is they, they're not coming in like, Hey, I want to compete in jujitsu. They want to, I want to come in and I want to do some exercise and I want to learn how to defend myself. You know, I think that is a, a major um, motivational factor for most people that start with jujitsu, start training jujitsu. And so I want to be true to that. But um, like I said, man, as long as it's growing and um, we keep creating positive results with jujitsu, that it's helping people throughout the world, um, you can't ask for anything more, right? And, and that this thing is each individual will have different needs. I mean, I know a lot of people that for myself included, most of my best friends that I have are from jujitsu. So the friendships that I have, the friendships that I have in my life, the relationships that I have in my life right now, um, my main friends are all, all came from training. And I mean, what is, you know, how, how important is that? And how, what is the, you can't put a number or a value on those relationships that have come into your life from, from that. So. Right. That's amazing. Um, and I, I always say like, you don't know someone until you roll with them. Like yeah. learn, you learn more in a 10 minute roll with someone not talking than you do from talking to someone for a few hours. So that's, you can definitely feel their energy, right? You can definitely feel their, their anxiety or their aggression or their fear or their, I, I definitely think that comes out. Huge. Well, Henry, I, um, you know, George, George will obviously, I, I think he's got some more comments, but uh, I have, you know, this is our first time talking, but, you know, obviously I've, I, I followed you very closely. I have a tremendous amount of respect for you and what you've done for the art. And um, I just want to say thanks very much for coming on. It's great to meet you. I hope this is a, uh, a relationship we get to keep going, even though we're on uh, opposite sides of the country. Look forward to, uh, meeting you in person when this thing's all over and just, um, thank you. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely be out East and, uh, we'll definitely, we, de we definitely have to plan on getting together. Heck yeah, sure. man. Um, dude, no joke. Like we've been doing this podcast for probably five years, I think. 
and your oh, wow. name has come up. Yeah, a, long, a while, you know, and it's kind of like we just do it for fun. But your this name. Ninth episode, Wayne Gretzky episode. Might be 100, I think, maybe. Is this 100? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but your name, Henry, your name comes up all the time. And like John Frankel, um, and, and then. Uh, and, and, talks about you as well. Yeah. And so. Um, it's it's I'm super stoked we got to do it uh, you know and thanks big thanks to Dave McInnes for he reached out and was like hey I know Henry like if you want to have him I was like yeah of course so oh, man yeah. thanks Dave right well to me too man I'm I'm so flattered and and so honored and I mean that I get to share my passion with other people and and to to be able to have an audience that I can kind of share my thoughts and ideas so I feel really really uh, honored to be able to share time with you guys. Thank you guys. Cause I know it's time out of your day too. And time away from your families to be able to do this. So hit, hit me up, man. Hit me up when you, uh, when you make plans to come out, we'll hang out. We'll show you a good time. I promise. Awesome. I can't right. wait. Thank you so much. so much. Stay Thank safe out there for you and your family. And we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. You too guys. Thank Peace. you.